Welcome to our podcast presented to you by the European Respiratory Society. Today we will be discussing idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, progressive interstitial lung disease and its clinical management. I'm Anka Stigmaier-Petroianu. I'm pleased to be speaking to ERJ Associate Editor Professor Ganesh Raghu of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle, USA. Welcome, Professor Raghu. Yes, good morning. Professor Raghu, what is the current understanding of the pathogenesis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis? Uh, well, the uh, exact mechanisms in the pathogenesis is unknown, and the etiology still remains to be elucidated. So the current concepts include the recurrent injury theory to the epithelial barrier of the gas exchange unit, disruption of the basement membrane, and uh, epithelial mesenchymal transformation, and proliferation of uh, residential cells, mesenchymal or fibroblast-like cells, and or recruited fibrocytes uh, from the bone marrow into the alveolar walls, and increased extracellular matrix deposition within the pulmonary parenchyma, decreased degradation of extracellular matrix, all of which results in loss of the, the architecture distortion of the pulmonary architecture, vascular bed, and eventually leading to end-stage honeycomb lung. Uh, these are the um, mechanistic aspects that are conceptually discussed in the pathogenesis of pulmonary fibrosis. The problem is the nature of the injurious agents is unknown. So it could be something that we inhale that is unidentified, or it could be a virus that we don't know as yet, or it could actually be something intrinsic within the human body of the person. Uh, for instance, there is a high prevalence of abnormal gastroesophageal reflux in patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis that raises the possibility of uh, occult uh, or silent microaspiration to distal lung uh, that could cause the injury occurring over time in a recurrent manner is one possibility. And mutations in surfactant proteins, telomerase, um, are some of the recent genetic factors that have been associated with a subset of patients with both uh, uh, sporadic and familial idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So that's the current concepts uh, in the pathogenesis of pulmonary fibrosis in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis stands around the yet-to-be-determined genetic predisposition factors, uh, some of which have already been determined in some subset, like these surfactant proteins, as I said, and telomerase, um, mutation, but regardless of this genetic 
predisposition, it is felt that something has to happen to the epithelial cells um, as a result of um, recurrent injury, which leads on to fibroblast uh, proliferation and fibrosis. That's very interesting. Moving on to the management of the disease, new guidelines for the diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis have just been published. In the April issue of the European Respiratory Journal, you are discussing the urgent need for such new evidence-based guidelines. Can you summarize for us the challenges in managing this disease? Yes. First of all, you know, the challenge uh, is in making an accurate diagnosis. And once you make an accurate diagnosis, then the physician is confronted with management or treatment of patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So the diagnostic challenge rests within the clinician who actually needs to be very, very thorough in eliminating all possible causes attributable to interstitial lung disease and pulmonary fibrosis. And this includes eliminating environmental exposures, factors that could contribute to onset of pulmonary fibrosis. The environmental factors could be either at work or at home or should also be elimination of collagen vascular disease like autoimmune diseases and elimination of certain drugs that is, are known to cause interstitial lung disease and pulmonary fibrosis. So therefore, the clinician really has to spend a lot of time in taking a very thorough history as well as eliminating all of these causes that could cause uh, pulmonary fibrosis. And once you eliminate, then the clinician is confronted with an unknown cause, and then the clinician has to recognize precise patterns of what we call usual interstitial pneumonia, which is the hallmark pattern recognizing idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in the right clinical setting, and the precise patterns of usual interstitial pneumonia in the HRCT, which is the high-resolution computed tomographic image of the chest, and surgical lung biopsies have been given in the new guideline in a very precise way, and therefore the clinician really needs to be aware of these precise characteristics in order to be able to diagnose. You have touched on the differential diagnosis, but could you tell us what would be a typical clinical setting and typical clinical symptoms where one should be considering this diagnosis? Well, the typical clinical setting occurs in a 60-plus-year-old male who may have had cigarette smoking history in the past, who simply presents to the primary care physician or general practitioner first with exertional dyspnea and cough with exertion. Mm -hmm. And those are the simple manifestation, but typically occurring in an otherwise relatively healthy 60-plus-year-old male with exertional shortness of breath and cough. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the chest X-ray showing interstitial lung disease. Right. The new guidelines define idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis as a progressive fibrosing interstitial pneumonia of unknown cause in adults that is limited to the lungs and is associated with a histopathological and or radiological pattern of usual interstitial pneumonia. 
What investigations are needed to make the definitive diagnosis? Well, once again, to emphasize that the clinician really has to eliminate other causes that are known to cause pulmonary fibrosis. And this is extremely important for the clinician to to rule that out. In order to rule that out, the first simplistic approach is take a very good thorough history, exploring the possibility of environmental factors at work and home, including uh, exposure to birds and bird droppings that may be present in their uh, windowsills or deck or patios that patients usually for, do not um, tell the physician. So it's important for the physician to put on leading questions to this particular patient. Uh, the second important thing is to eliminate collagen vascular diseases. So it requires uh, um, good clinical examination looking for uh, manifestations of collagen vascular disease as well as uh, doing a laboratory screening for uh, collagen vascular diseases. Now, those two simple things need to be done. And then the two, the, the important diagnostic step is obtain a high-resolution computer tomographic images of the chest. So HRCT scan of the chest is extremely important to be obtained uh, as a diagnostic step because that CT scan patterns are very, very important to be recognized. So if the CT scan pattern is not consistent with the usual interstitial pneumonia pattern as has been precisely defined and described in the new guidelines, then there are possible and probable patterns or consistent patterns and inconsistent patterns. Surgical lung biopsy will then need to be obtained for determination of the pathological features. And again, the pathological features of usual interstitial pneumonia pattern has been precisely given in these new guidelines. And the pathologist should be very familiar with the very set precise criteria of what constitutes a definite usual interstitial pneumonia pattern and what constitutes a possible UIP pattern, a probable UIP pattern, and what constitutes a not UIP pattern. All of these have been given by criteria features, and the clinician and the pathologist and the radiologist respectively should be aware of these in order to make a precise diagnosis of usual interstitial pneumonia pattern because the presence of the UIP pattern in the right clinical setting after eliminating all the causes as well as eliminating the collagen vascular disease will make a diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in a very precise manner. Well, coming back to the guidelines, could you summarize for us the most relevant changes in the new guidelines referring to previously established major and minor diagnostic criteria and maybe referring to the diagnostic value of pulmonary function testing in IPF? Yes. So I've already alluded some of the things for the diagnostic criteria, emphasizing the awareness and the recognition of the usual interstitial pneumonia pattern both in the CT scans and the surgical lung biopsy. The previously established major and minor criteria is no longer used. So that major and minor criteria should be forgotten, mm -hmm. essentially. The new diagnostic criteria emphasizes the importance of the recognition of the usual interstitial pneumonia pattern, both in the CT scan and in the surgical lung biopsy. The other thing that the 
the new uh, guidelines gives the reader or the clinician is the combination of the histopathological criteria or the features of possible UIP and probable UIP or non-classifiable fibrosis to be utilized in combination of the CT criteria, which could be UIP or it could be possible UIP or it could be inconsistent UIP. So this particular combination between CT patterns and the surgical lung biopsy pattern has been given to the clinician to be able to make a diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in an accurate manner. The other thing that the guideline also emphasizes in these complex situations of trying to match the combinations between the CT criteria and the surgical lung biopsies, it often requires a multidisciplinary discussions among experts familiar with interstitial lung disease as experts in a regional center, uh, perhaps, or within their center, where there are experts recognizing these particular features and multidisciplinary discussions uh, among clinicians that are pulmonologists, radiologists, and pathologists familiar with these categories is important to make an accurate diagnosis uh, as well. For those clinicians who are less familiar with IPF, uh, what is the natural course of the disease and, and what are the recommendations with regard to the clinical monitoring of patients? Well, the natural course of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is unfortunately unpredictable for a given patient with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. However, we now know that the natural course of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis follows three possible pathways. The one typical pathway is a slow and steady decline in their pulmonary function test as well as worsening shortness of breath with exertion over a few years' time. So that's the most common pathway. A subset of patients can be stable for several years and not follow this slow and steady decline. And another small set of patients follow a course called rapid decline right from the onset of the disease over a few months to a year. So then these three pathways are the natural course of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. The slow and the steady decline is the common pathway. But what the clinician also needs to be aware, because this awareness is important for the clinician to be able to discuss this with the patient, is that there is another phenomenon called acute exacerbation of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis that occurs as a natural course. So a patient may be stable for several years, but something seems to trigger a rapid downhill course despite being stable for several years or despite following a slow and steady decline, a insult to the lung will precipitate a downhill course called acute exacerbation. Unfortunately, there is no predictive markers as yet that has been identified to say in a predictive manner that a patient will manifest acute exacerbation. But luckily, the acute exacerbation, at least based on studies and evidence um, gathered today, the incidence of the acute exacerbation occurs 
in about 5 to 15% of patients uh, diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So that was one of your questions as far as the natural course is concerned. And then you also asked for the monitoring of, uh, of this disease course. It is important for patients who have been diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis to be monitored for the disease course with regular follow-up visits at about four-month intervals, so four- to six-month intervals. But for a given patient, if a patient is rapidly declining, that patient may need to be followed sooner than the four-month interval. And when followed up, the patient will need to be uh, monitored with pulmonary function testing um, that are obtained in the pulmonary function lab. It's also important to assess the adequacy of the oxygenation of that given patient, either at rest or with simple exercise activities such as walking on a flat level, to see if a patient's oxygenation deteriorates or desaturates, and that particular patient might need supplemental oxygen. This is important because because the process of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is a dynamic one. So what may have occurred or assessed four months to six months before may not be the same when the patient comes back for four to six months later. So pulmonary function test, oxygenation, adequacy, while breathing air at rest, or the needs for supplemental oxygen will need to be monitored at four to six month intervals in a typical patient. So it is very important to regularly assess the need for oxygen supplementation and maybe also exclude complications. What are the current uh, treatment options or treatment recommendations? Well, this is an important uh, uh, aspect of the guidelines because the treatment uh, recommendations have been made based on evidence that has been accumulated to date. Uh, and, and a robust methodology using great evidence has been used. And the treatment recommendations for specific therapies have been made. And the committee, uh, first of all, did not find any pharmacological interventions uh, as effective for the typical patient with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. But specific therapies have been, recommendations have been made based on recommendations as strong recommendations or weak recommendations. And the strong recommendations have been uh, stated as strong yes and strong no. And weak recommendations have been weak no and weak yes. So there are specific treatment recommendations against the use of specific agents for the treatment of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis have been made as strong. Uh, For example, corticosteroid monotherapy, colchicine, cyclosporine A, combined corticosteroid and immune modulator therapy, interferon gamma B, bosentan, etanercept, are the agents that the committee have strongly recommended against the use of these interventions or pharmacological interventions. But the recommendation against the use of some treatment regimen that are weak have also been made. And and the guidelines really provides a precise recommendations for uh, treatment recommendations based on the weak yes and the weak no. Uh, weak yes means the implication to the patient 
what it means for a recommendation of weak yes that the majority of the patients would want that particular treatment interventions and many would not uh, is what the weak yes recommendation would be so for example the weak yes recommendation for treatment of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis has been corticosteroids for acute exacerbation of IPF and treatment of asymptomatic gastroesophageal reflux and pulmonary rehabilitation have been recommended by the committee uh, as a weak yes recommendation. Again, the implication for the patient means that these agents or treatment interventions should be used in the majority of patients or the majority of patients would want that but also should recognize but many would not. And it also would imply that not using them may be a reasonable choice in a minority. So these kind of things have been emphasized in the guideline. And there is a weak no recommendation, which is an important recommendation. And what the weak no recommendation means or implication for the patient is that the majority of the patient would not want the treatment interventions which have been labeled as weak no but many would. The, the, for example, the following treatment interventions have been stated as not to be used in the majority of patients, but maybe a reasonable choice in a minority. These are combined prednisone, azathioprine, and N-acetylcysteine, monotherapy with N-acetylcysteine, anticoagulation, perfenadone, pulmonary hypertension associated with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, mechanical ventilation in patients with respiratory failure due to IPF has been recommended by the committee as a weak no. So these are the kind of recommendations that have been made, but it's also important for the clinician taking care of the patient for treatment to recognize that there have been two treatment recommendations that have been stated or recommended as strong yes. The implication of a strong yes recommendation means that most patients would want the treatment intervention and only a small proportion would not. For example, long-term oxygen therapy in patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis demonstrating clinically significant resting hypoxemia is a strong yes recommendation. Lung transplantation in the appropriate patient is recommended as a strong yes. So the treatment recommendations have been really very carefully recommended based on the quality of evidence graded as well as the voting of the committee um, um, has been given in the guidelines. And, and this would allow, in my opinion, the physician who is taking care of the patient to to assess the treatment recommendations of this committee in a very transparent manner and therefore empowers the physician to be able to make the right decision tailored to that patient with typical IPF based on patient's preferences and values. I think our guideline will allow the physician taking care of the patient to be able to make appropriate decisions using these guidelines um, is, is what I would hope that the guidelines would uh, accomplish.
What is the role of international networks such as the European IPF network? Well, it's an important role because in order to make further advance in the management of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, it is very, very important for experts and clinicians involved with patients to join hands. And the European IPF network, for example, provides an excellent mean of conducting studies in a team effort uh, in Europe uh, um, as well as in the United States. Well, thank you, Professor Raghu, for this excellent overview. Thank you.